Well, good evening and welcome to Authors on the Air. Um, I am your guest host, Bruce Robert Coffin, and it is my great pleasure to introduce uh, a friend of mine and a prolific best-selling author um, who, whose name you might be familiar with. Uh, joining me now is Craig Johnson, the author of the Longmire series. Craig, thank you for joining the program. Thanks, Bruce. Great to be here with you. Uh, you are in the middle of another tour, uh, this time launching uh, book 19 in the series. Is that right? You, you make it sound like I'm on tour every month. You're like, well, it's, uh, it's only once a month a year. It's not so bad. Like you're you know, like the Rolling Stones out there. You know what? There's a buddy of mine, Willie Vlauten, like uh, who's a wonderful writer out of Portland. Look at, and I was just in the Northwest. Look at, and he was so funny because he looked at the tour and he goes, "Craig, man, you tour like a band, man." <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Can you believe? Uh, can you believe? I mean, uh, the Longmire Defense, by the way, is an incredible novel. Um, I just you. just finished it, and uh, it's every bit as good, or maybe even better, than some of the uh, books you've written already. Oh, thank um, you, sir. Thank you. Can, can you believe that you're on book number nineteen? I mean, is no, that even... not at all, not at all. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I mean, you know, people keep asking me about the numbers of the books and everything. And to be honest, I guess I don't really look at it as you know individual books. I mean, for me, it's all you know, just one great big tapestry of Walt's, you know, literary life, you know, for the last, you know, I guess it would only be five years because I mean, you know, it takes me four books to get through one year of Walt's literary life. And right. so I've got book 20 coming up here next year and, and we've only known Walt, you know, for five years. And so it, it's been an action packed kind of five years for him, I have to admit, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I just look at it all as one continuous story. Um, all the way back from the cold dish back in 05, all the way to today. And hopefully, you know, for the next 20 years to come, too. Right. Exactly. Well, hopefully for the rest of us, too. Um, <laughs> when, when you wrote the cold dish, uh, how, how many I've, I've heard this story before, but I can't remember exactly. How many years did it take you to finish that first book? Well, are, are you talking about actual writing or are you talking about the hiatus that I took? Yeah, uh, even thinking about it. I mean, I, I know you took a long time to think about it. <laughs> I did. I did. I, you know what, you know, being a writer is tricky like that because, you know, when you're not getting paid to do it, you know, sometimes life can intervene like that. And, uh, I was, you know, I was building a ranch like it and, you know, and I, I built it myself, you know, I mean, I literally, you know, I had one of those fathers that thought you were slave labor, you know, of course, until you, you know, ex escaped, you know, on your own like that. And, uh, you know, an uncle who ran a construction company. And so we learned, you know, very early on, um, you know, how to do construction, basic construction, you know, how to do masonry work, how to do plumbing, you know, basic rough plumbing and electricals and all that kind of stuff. And so when it came time to build my ranch, like I also I couldn't afford to hire anybody to do it. Like that. So I had mm. to kind of just do it myself. And so I had written, you know, after I got the first part of the house done. Um, it was a little cabin, only 32 by 24, like a little log cabin. And uh, and I wrote those first two chapters of The Cold Dish. Like at, then I, you know, I took a, like the better part of a nine and a half year hiatus like at, uh, to get everything else done in my life, get the ranch all done and some other projects and everything. And then finally came back to it. You know, by that time I was, you know, getting in my 40s. And I thought to myself, okay, if you're going to do this, if you're going to write this book, you know, you're kind of running out of time. You need to, you know, knuckle down and really do this. Okay. And so I did, you know, I really, you know, put all of my, invested all my time and energy into it to really kind of get it done. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, it took less than a year for me to, to really finish up the rest of the book. Like that. And then it got picked up by a big agent there in New York and picked up by Viking Penguin and, uh, Everything kind of fell into place. Look at, and then, and then of course, there's the shock 
as you well know what it's like. Right. I mean, you, you you work for 10 years to get a book done and then they say, hey, that's great. We need another one in six months. You know? and, <laughs> and you're like, you don't even know if you're going to write a second one for goodness sake. Well, right. in six months, you know, so it, it's kind of touch and go at that point. Like that, yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's, you know, I mean, you kind of get in the groove and things like that and you really start enjoying it. I mean, you know, to, to get to do what we do, um, to have the opportunity to do what it is that we do, you know, and then have people actually paying you and actually, you know, plucking it off the shelves, you know, and actually reading your work. I mean, it's it's how could anybody describe it as anything other than a dream come true? It's really right. spectacular. It's pretty special for sure. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Longmire defense. Um, there is a historical element front and center in this particular novel. Did you intend to weave in some of Walt's ancestral history when you began writing this or did it just just sort of happen naturally? Oh, no, it had to. I mean, it was a, a storyline. Like, and I don't know if you remember a fellow by the name of Elmer Keith, um, who used to be a big game hunter. And, you know, I mean, he's uh, incorporated a lot of these big, uh, big cartridges like at calibers that came on later. Like it was a cowboy, big game hunter, outfitter, all this. And he wrote a number of books, you know, about. Uh, about weapons, about the outdoors and all of this. And there was one that he wrote that was called uh, Hell, I Was There. And it was the autobiographical uh, book that he wrote. And he grew up in western Montana. And there was one instance where a guy was killed in a hunting accident who was actually the um, the accountant you know, for the state of Montana. And it's Ooh. only maybe, you know, maybe about three pages you know, long. Um, he doesn't name names like that. He's, he's pretty careful about that. Like that. Mm -hmm. His theory was basically that, you know, this fella came back from the war and found some of his compatriots, you know, had been uh, kind of raiding the coffers of the state of Montana. And uh, and they they killed him. They took him up on that elk camp like that and killed him off. Like it, it haunted me that story for an awfully long time like that. And I knew that there would be uh, you know, a place for that particular story. And I thought, OK, well, that's not a story that I think I wanted to write in the in the modern day like that there's just too much you know technological advances as far as forensics and ballistics and that type of thing to discover you know who might have done it or what might have happened but uh, if it was a cold case that went back i thought that might be a little bit more interesting and so you know any kind of a cold case that was going to go back like that i thought you know boy if i can get you know walt's grandfather involved with that and have it become an issue you know that he knows about a story that he's aware of you know, simply from his father telling him, you know, handing that story down to him. Um, and then when they discover that the weapon you know, is finally found, where Walt finally finds it, at least look at in the modern day, and they discover that it actually belonged to his grandfather. Well, the, you know, the the crosshairs kind of fall pretty clearly on Lloyd Longmire. Like that, right. You know, and that relationship that he's had with his grandfather is a very rocky one that's been going on for a number of novels now. And so, you know, a lot of people wanted to hear that story. They wanted to know what it was that had happened between Walt and his grandfather and and all of that. And um, I don't know, with this one, it's a different kind of, uh, of storyline in the sense that, you know, I like to think of Walt as a very ecumenical investigator, a very fair, you know, minded detective who, you know, honestly believes that everybody's innocent until proven guilty mm -hmm. until he discovers that that rifle belonged to his grandfather. And then he's almost like he's rooting for it. It's almost like right. he's working for it, you know, right. Or, He's working a lot harder for this because he didn't want any sense of impropriety. If his grandfather killed a man, then, you know, we needed to know about it. You know, it needed to be, you know, uh, you know accurately, you know, uh, displayed like that, that he had done something that he shouldn't have done. Well, it's, it's a brilliant uh, plot line and you do a really nice job interweaving the present with with those past uh, uh, 
pieces that are being exposed to the reader as the story goes on. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. Um, I got to ask you if, if we can do this without having it be a spoiler. Do you mind telling the readers where or our viewers where um, the title came from? You know, it's it, no, it's not a spoiler at all like that, because it, it's uh, it's interesting because there are a lot of scenes like in the book, you know, between Walt and his grandfather. And a lot of them take place on the chessboard. Um, you know, one of the, the, the fondest memories that Walt has about his grandfather is the fact that he taught him how to play chess. And uh, I think it was one of those rare places that they could meet as equals. I mean, Walt was a child, basically, like that, you know, and his grandfather's like, you know, what, you know, 70, 80 years old, for goodness sake. like And so, you know, he's got a lot of life experience to draw from as far as, you know, playing chess. like that. And he doesn't take it easy on his grandson like that. He, you know, he plays him up hard like that. And uh, I think the old man had a plan there. I think the old man thought, you know what, you know, he, he needs to think. He needs to learn how to think. Like that and uh, one of the good things about chess is is that it teaches you to to you know to you know, be like one two three twelve moves ahead of right. you know anybody you're up against like that and so in many ways like that, as antagonistic as that relationship was between Walt and his grandfather he kind of owes his grandfather a, a debt you know of uh, gratitude for making him as good of a you know of an investigator and as you know and able to survive as he does i mean he comes up against some pretty shady characters in this particular book which was you know also one of the challenges um, in this type of book. And I mean, I know you, you know all about this, but we might want to share it with readers like it in that, uh, you know, you can come up with a good cold case storyline, but you know, that's really the character, your, your protagonist is going to do what go to the research library and you know, right. go interview people <laughs> right. not particularly dramatically conflictive no. <laughs> or, uh, you know, compelling literature like that, you know, as far as like mysteries or thrillers are concerned. And so I knew there had to be, you know, some kind of, um, connection between the crime in that period and the crime that you know was going on now to kind of you know walt in the crosshairs a little bit like that and threaten him in some ways and uh you know boy there were some things that i discovered you know and that's the fun part too of course you know that too, as far as like the research is concerned that's the fun stuff because you know you get to go research things that you normally would never in a million years you know even think about you know going and and, and finding out about but uh you know for me i i found out that you know that an awful lot of western states you know basically you know support their economy with these mineral wealth funds that they have you know where of mm -hmm. course whenever these corporations come in and take out minerals or oil or gas or things like that they have to give a percentage of that to the state like and wyoming's was incorporated in 1968 because in 1968 get this the wyoming state treasury had eighty dollars and 14 cents in it. that was it <laughs> oh, wow. i don't know what we would have done there would have been a big blank space between montana and colorado <laughs> but they, uh, they they knew right then and there you know, and, and i think like nevada had already done a mineral resource fund alaska had already done one and I thought, OK, you know, if this was something that was thought of in 1968, maybe they tried to do it earlier and maybe it didn't work. But maybe it did. You know, maybe there was something more there. And, and so, you know, when you're talking about an issue like that, you're not talking about you know millions with an M. You're talking about billions with a B. And, you know, boy, people can get pretty desperate when you start threatening, you know, billions of dollars of income, you know. And so, you know, that, that pretty much, you know, made for a pretty exciting situation for Walt later on. That's a lot of motive right there. It is. It is. So I got to ask you, uh, a little bird told me, I was doing a little research for this interview, and a little bird told me that you'll do almost anything to have an excuse to buy a new pair of boots. 
<laughs> did you uh, did you have a close call recently while on the ranch? I did have a close call recently, like that. But boy, it was not. I didn't do it intentionally. Like I got to tell you, <laughs> I do. You know, at the ranch there, you know, one of the things I enjoy doing. I mean, there are just certain jobs that you know that you you enjoy doing, like that. And uh, you know, I, I like doing firewood. Like and I grew up doing firewood. I've lived my whole life doing firewood. You know, and I've got wood burning stoves. You know, all in the different parts of the house and fireplaces and all this. And so. You know, it's a Wyoming winter like that. And so, you know, things get a little bit cold like that. And so it's always nice to have a little bit of extra wood. So I generally do about 15 cords of firewood every winter, wow. um, you know, and I'll use up like maybe 10, I guess, or something like that and have a little bit left over for if anybody around me, you know, if they need some firewood or anything like that. I've also got a cabin up on the mountain and I'll sometimes, you know, uh, haul a little bit of firewood up there, which is kind of like coals to Newcastle since that's where all the trees are anyway, like that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, uh, I do a lot of firewood like that. And I had, let's see what two truckloads of, uh, log lengths brought in and dumped in the North pasture. And, uh, you know, and I block it and, you know, and I split it and <coughs> excuse me and stack it and do all that myself. Like that. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I learned a long time ago whenever you're doing really hard work, you know, whether you're working with animals or stock or, you know, or heavy equipment or chainsaws that, mm. you know, uh, when you stumble, you're done. You know, when you, when you find yourself stumbling around or something like that, you're finished, you're done like that for the day, you know, because you're, you're going to end up getting hurt is yeah. what's going to happen. And, uh, and, and I was stumbling around there with that chainsaw like that. And I thought to myself, okay, I think you're probably done. Like, so I thought that I'd clicked it off when I brought it back down past my foot. And I hadn't, it, uh, it hadn't been completely turned off like it. And so it hit that leather boot that I was wearing. Like it was just a pair of Justin, you know, ropers like it. And boy, I, it went, you know, right down the side of that leather boot like that. And I felt the tug and everything. And it's just, you know, whenever you do something like that, I'm sure you've had the same experience too. You know, I felt that chainsaw run down the side of my foot like it. And I just looked off in the distance and thought, I'm not going to look at that right now. <laughs> <laughs> pretend like that didn't happen. I'm right. Just, uh, look off to the sunset here, you know, and, and uh, you know, enjoy the romantic historic American West. You know, <laughs> <sunset>. <laughs> and pretend like that didn't happen. Like and so I, I stood there for a moment, like that, and I thought, well, okay, I don't don't feel anything. Nothing hurts. Like that, and I thought to myself, well, you know, either I didn't hurt myself, or else I cut the part off that's going to tell me that. You know, I was hurt. <laughs> And so then, you know, I looked down like that and boy, I mean, the boot was just ripped all the way down the side. Like, and I thought, oh, this is just not good. So I tossed the chainsaw over to the side there, like, and, and turned around, sat down on the log there, you know, and very carefully eased that boot off. Like, mm -hmm. and, and I took it the rest of the way off. And, and then, you know what? It did not even rip the sock. I wow. mean, it, it ate the boot and didn't get the sock and, and my foot, which was just a miracle like that. And so next thing I did was like, you know, go inside, you know, and order up a pair of steel toed logger, <laughs> um, which I was complaining about to my wife saying, I can't believe they cost $179. <laughs> I, I think your toes are worth $179. Right. <laughs> that's short money. That is short money. Well, we're glad that nothing happened to you. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, so I got to ask while we got a little bit of time here, uh, any chance you could give us a hint as to what lies ahead for Walt, uh, in oh, the next installment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a book that I actually finished before I went on tour. 
Um, I, I normally don't get the books done that quickly, like, but I, I hit this one really, really hard right after the holidays. Like, you know, I'm pretty much had it in good shape to, to get handed into Viking Penguin with it. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's another one that kind of glances backwards at a period in time. The majority of the book takes place um, in 1963. It's called First Frost which uh, a lot, lot of readers might not know like that, that uh, when it is that you switch over from your palm leaf hat or your straw hat over to your wool hat, um, you know, your beaver fur hat, like that, that's mm-hmm. the first frost. First frost happens, that's when you switch over and you change hats. And uh, it just seemed like, you know, kind of prophetic like that for this particular book that takes place in 1963. What happens is, of course, Walt and Henry have graduated from college, like at Henry from Berkeley in, in, in around San Francisco, like that Walt from down at USC, like that. And uh, they lose their, their deferment and uh, receive a, a, an invitation from the federal government for an all expense paid trip to Vietnam. Right. And, uh, and so they, they get this invitation like that. And they're supposed to report and uh, Henry's supposed to report to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Uh, and uh, Tigerland, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Walt's supposed to report to uh, uh, to Paris Island, you know, over off the coast of uh, South Carolina. And it's interesting, like that, because you know, you know, most Western Marines report to Twenty Nine Palms, you know, but there's also a, a story we find out why it is that Walt ends up having to go to Paris Island on the eastern part of the, the country, like that. But uh, there they are in 1963, starting out in a ranch truck, you know, and they have to jump on the historic Mother Road, Route 66, and uh, head all the way across the country. Both of them at the ripe old age of 22, a 22 year old Walt and a 22 year old Henry, pretty much in the, the peak wow. of their physical abilities, having played college football, you know, for sure. four years like that. And uh, the question, of course, becomes how far do they get before they get into trouble? Right. And, uh, and of course, you know, in, 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 in the Longmire universe, that can't be very long. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to that. I think we all are. Craig, uh, you're such a good sport. Um, thank you for taking time out in the middle of your current tour to do this. Um, join us on Authors on the Air. Best of luck with the rest of your tour and with the Longmire defense. Thank you, Bruce. It was great being here. Like I will always take time off with, for you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. <laughs>